Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today uh, we are here to decide whether Marx and Engels or Bickler and Nitzan would win in a fight. And to help me decide that, I have a friend of the show, Corey. How you doing, Corey? I'm doing all right. Uh, so Corey has been reading Capitalist Power, um, which we are very familiar with on the show, and... Um, He's been talking to us about it in our group DM on the subject, and so I thought it would be fun to uh, bring him on and talk about Capitalist Power as well as Capital, which I am reading. Um, so I wanted to start with Capitalist Power. Um, so uh, yeah, what, what what have you read so far in Capitalist Power? How far are you? Um, so I just finished part one. Um, finishing with the chapter with chapter, I think it's four deflections of power. Um, so part one is the critique of other frameworks part, right? Uh, yes, I think. Hold on, let me let me look in the. I'll actually run and grab my copy too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um dilemmas of political economy. So yeah, it's a critique of other of other forms of political economy. Cool. Um. So what do you think so far? I like it a lot. Uh, kind of previewing a question that you're going to ask me later. <laughs> I think I think a lot of its criticisms of like Marxism and Marx are pretty apt. Uh, I have some disagreements with some of the stuff that they say, but it's mo but it's less about like their takes on Marxism and more like kind of like their argumentation style and like. Maybe some methodological stuff. I don't know. I might be using that word wrong. Okay. Uh, I mean, we can elaborate on that right away if you want. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's just. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm going to read what I wrote for like my notes on this um, sure. just to help me organize my thoughts. I have really bad ADHD and like. <laughs> reading this book is very difficult for me but like it's also fun because it's like difficult and like it forces me to kind of like learn new things new coping strategies and stuff anyways that's a little bit about <laughs> me <laughs> um but what i wrote was uh i think they're good uh so like i think their critiques of like marx and marxism are 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 good um but I'm less interested in whether they're like fair or correct or anything and more interested in like the fact that it creates a new discourse with Marxists. Cause like, I think I'm, I'm more critical of Marxism in some ways than they are and less criti critical of Marxism in some ways than they are. Um, and my main problem is like, I think the Marxism as an ideology is like, really suffering under its own historical baggage uh -huh. and and there's a lot of effort from marxists to like force some like new phenomenon or some historical phenomenon into being like anodyne with marxian analysis rather yeah. than like possibly trying to understand it in a new way like maybe right. marxian analysis is not enough and that's okay and like just playing around with new analytical framework and new new like methodology like I, i'm i'm an anarchist so i'm already like 
coming from this in a different perspective. Uh-huh. Maybe even than they are. Um, but, but I think like the fact that it creates new ways of dialoguing with Marx, with Marxists and Marxism is like the thing that I find most compelling. Yeah. I think you touched on one of the issues that I've had with trying to talk to people about it, which is most people, if they are, you know, interested in political economy and they're not right-wingers basically uh they're usually marxists and anytime i bring up something from capitalist power that's like new like yeah um, differential analysis or centering finance um you know describing capital capital as finance or the importance of mergers and acquisitions and inflation uh, their instinct is always to say, oh, well, Marx actually talked about that. So it's not new. Which, like, is true. <laughs> Maybe he did, but he talked about it in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> and it usually actually isn't. <laughs> yeah. Because if he talked about it, then they wouldn't have anything to write about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the The other thing that I think is fun about the way that they come fun describing political economy is fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, that they come at this is like they show how like how much uh, how much like Marxist economics is still tied to a lot of like classical and neoclassical like uh, analysis and that sometimes it's just like maybe slight tweaks on it mm-hmm. and this might be like a really petty way to like describe my feelings on it. But if the point of philosophy isn't to interpret the world, but change it like Marx, you could have changed a lot more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I will actually be touching on that uh, when we get to the capital part. Um, Okay. But yeah, that's that. I also have the same issue with Marx. He, He really accepts the framing of the economists of his day quite a lot. And it yeah. bothers the shit out of me. Yeah. Um, especially because me personally, I'm, I would call myself like an economic nihilist maybe. Yeah. Because I just think that just about every single thing that economists say is 100% bullshit. And <laughs> they, they basically want to create a, a narrative where the economy is like a magic machine that, you know, is like the the most perfect optimal thing uh, that has ever been built, and there's no way to do anything better than the economy. Right. And, it's like and, a, it's like a black it's like a black box where like production in with production inputs on one end and like proper like distribution on the other end. It's like you put the stuff in one side and then the other side. Yeah. No, we're good. Yeah. It's like it goes through this cosmic realm where you know just magic happens and instead of it being like flawed humans making conscious choices it's like some otherworldly force that turns out i don't know just like optimal outcomes it's just insane and um i think i think marx takes that framing quite a bit but um anyway we're talking about capitalist power so um we kind of went through all the questions at once uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, so like 
I did mention that, like, I consider myself an anarchist, and like mm-hmm. my my relationship with like Marx, Marxism, and Marxists is I, I describe it as like I dislike Marxists, but I mostly like Marx, despite like with the exception of some of the things that like Bickler and Nitzan bring up and like mm-hmm. my own kind of like ideological background and influences are uh big fan of Bookchin. Uh, otherwise mm-hmm. I wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I also really like um, Freddie Perlman. Um, and that, I've never heard of Freddie Perlman. Okay. Freddie Perlman's cool. Um, he wrote uh, against history against Leviathan, which. Oh, okay. I've heard re- that title. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't recommend that book to everybody. It's very weird, and, like, you have to approach it, like, in a very, like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's a very weird book, and a lot of people hate it, and a lot of people like it. Okay. Um, but his shorter stuff um, that I highly, highly recommend is uh, The con- Continuing Appeal of Nationalism, which is, like, kind of showing how left nationalism is garbage and leads to like bad choices. Um, sounds good to me. Then, huh? That's I said, that sounds good to me. <laughs> oh yeah. No, it's really, really good. And he's, he's a very like snarky writer. He's, he's very fun to read. And then the other one is um, the reproduction of everyday life. Um, or it's something like that, uh, which is, just about kind of how when you the gist of it is like if you live in a totalizing system like capitalism you end up reproducing the conditions for capitalism just in your everyday life just in the way that you go about things and so like it's simultaneously like a critique of individualism and like a defense of it (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) because it's like you can't make individual decisions that like confront capitalism, but the individual decisions that you make have an effect on it. And you have to kind of consider like what things you have to do in order to subvert it on an individual level and on a like collective level. Gotcha. It's very cool. His, I like, I like the way that he, he like thinks and writes. His um, he he also says that a lot of people call him like an anarchist or a Marxist, and he's like the only thing I am, the only ist I am is a cellist. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, he's he's cool. And then so you also have uh, Foucault down here. Oh yeah, Foucault, Camus, and Paul Feyerabend, um, who like aren't like ideological; they're more just straight up philosophy but there's like a lot of a lot of overlap i like philosophy of science a lot too gotcha which we will probably get into a little bit <laughs> yeah a little bit <laughs> <laughs> um so i guess uh one of the big things I, w- I was just looking through the chapter headings to refresh my memory a little bit one of the big things in the early part of the book is the um the crit- critique of the split between politics and economics, which I think is a really important part of the book. And um, also, you know, one of the uh, ideological framings that Marx accepts, which for him is called base and superstructure, which I mm-hmm. still, I still never know which is which, <laughs> you know, every time someone mentions base and superstructure, I have to look up, 
which is which one is supposed to be like the state and which one is supposed to be uh the economy according to him so i guess it's superstructure is the government and the base is the economy but uh i don't think that's how he really like conceptualizes it from my understanding like base people's relations to production and then superstructures everything not to do with production oh okay maybe i was wrong that's what all the graphics i'm seeing i that's how i looked it up i just image searched it (laughs) that's what all the graphics are saying now is uh yeah but uh, Yeah. yeah i i don't i don't understand that framing why it's necessary and uh i think it's bad and I, yeah. I'm glad that uh, Bickler and Nitzan critique that in their book. Yes, yeah. The I, I really like how they point out that, like, with with liberals and classical economics, it's separate. Like, mm-hmm. the the economy and politics are just two separate things, and you can do politics without economy, and you can do economics without politics. Which, like, from my like limited political experience just flat out seems like bullshit (laughs) yeah so i'm already sympathetic there but then like when they describe like the marxist conception which is like he separates it and he like distinguishes it but tries to make the argument that they're like connected or something Uh uh-huh and even then, that's silly because politics and economics are the same thing. You can't yeah. do one without doing the other. And right. at least today, maybe in the past, I I, I don't want to like make that claim. But and I think that they make a compelling argument that yeah, it's still the it's still the case for like when Marx was writing. But I I I don't know if I fully agree with them, and I haven't really thought about why. One of the things I'm noticing in, I mean, I'm looking at like a bunch of different ones of these graphics, like in the superstructure, there's a lot of stuff that would be considered part of the economy as well, like art, culture, media, right, science, education, religion, I guess would be out sort of outside of it, but it's really not. And, well, um, you know, like a, a big issue with trying to separate these things is they obviously interact in reality. And so you have to like, it basically becomes like a self-justifying like ideology where, uh, you know, if you're a liberal, you believe that politics and economics are separate. And if, when they interact, it's like, Oh, that's money in politics. That's bad. That's corruption. That's bad. That's interference in the market. That's, you know, uh, distort market distortions, they have like all of these terms to describe like ordinary interactions between the government and the market that it creates. And so it just becomes a big confused mess. Right. <laughs> With a lot of moralizing involved, you know? Yeah. And, and one thing you kind of, one thing I find interesting about this is like, and granted, I think Marx kind of goes into this, but I can't remember. Um, making art like if you if you are if if you're part of the base because even looking at this image it says that lumpen proletariat and proletariat and the labor aristocracy and the petite bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie are part of the base but if you make mm-hmm. art 
as a part of the base, does it automatically like become part of the superstructure? Or is it representational of the superstructure? Like, is it possible to make, is it actually possible to make subversive art? Yeah. I don't know. Like with this particular like conceptualization of it, I'm, I'm not sure that it's possible. And one of the things that, that Bickler and Nitzan point out, which I know is later in the book than where I've read, but I've kind of like picked up bits and pieces from all over the place is mm-hmm. like, the act of sabotage and creating like these like kind of arbitrary middlemen between between in production lines and like between business and industry. Right. And that's happened with art. Like, like I have a bunch of people and I have a bunch of friends in bands who like were promoting the fact that like Bandcamp was, was waiving all of their fees for yesterday. And it's like, what if Bandcamp didn't exist and we just had like a platform to share music and and like and also to self advertise as a band to like recoup some of the costs of be of creating music as a hobby? Yeah, because most of most of the the friends and bands that that I know are doing it as like a a hobby and a side hustle. You know what I mean? Like it's not their full time job. Um, one thing that they talk about kind of at the end of chapter four, um, is really teasing apart the whole public private distinction, which I think you've talked about in another show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, just reading. So on page 62, they're talking about Ellen Meekson's wood. Um, and they say like, According to Ellen Meekson's Wood, um, capital is the privatization of politics insofar as it gives private owners the authority to organize production. Meekson accepts the existence of the economy, complete with Marx's laws of capitalist development, etc. Um, the novelty is that the boundaries of her economy are not rigid, but supple. But then they go, Meekson's Wood is right to argue that capital is the privatization of politics, but the public-private distinction is not the same as the distinction between economics and politics. And since capital is not an economic entity, the fact that it privatizes power tells us nothing about the relationship between the economic and the political. And what I liked about, about that is, like, it really kind of exposes how public, how we use public, is not, like, does not mean state or political power if the state is run by pi- private interests, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I I didn't really have any anything else to say about that, but I thought that that was like a very appropriate thing attached to their larger like criticism of the separation of economics and politics. Yeah, another thing that I wanted to bring up earlier that I, I just remembered was um, the the whole corruption thing. I think if you, like, corruption is, like, a big thing that is used to get people out of power that, like, the overall ruling class doesn't like. Because yes. every single one of them are thoroughly corrupt as far as that word is defined. Um, you know, like, especially in the current election in the u.s both right. candidates are are thoroughly corrupt by any sense of the word um, biden 
Biden comes from like the credit card capital of the country. Yeah. You cannot tell me that credit card companies are not inherently corrupt. Like the whole nature of like the way that credit is is given and financially recouped is absolutely awful. Yeah, and and like his his fucking son just getting random like jobs on boards of directors. Right. I mean that's how like that's how the ruling class just works in general. Right. But according to the frame where politics and economics are supposed to be separate because you know if you let them work together then bad stuff happens um that that is corruption but of course that's just how it always works because you know the government creates the economy and they create all the rules of the economy they give it all of the money that it uses and so obviously they have to like choose who gets it and you know like it's just impossible for them to not interact like constantly but well, they, th- the state like gives them the money that they use, but also legitimizes the like other forms of money. If I'm trying to remember like the way that you you talked about this before, like oh, like endogenous money. Do what? Like endogenous money, credit money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. legitimizes that sort of money supply too. So like, right. You have like the the legitimizing aspects of like the structure of the state and then you have like the fact that the state does the same thing (laughs) yeah yeah and then you know of course like nobody really pays attention to the everyday corruption uh that's at you know every level of government uh every uh, just about every single politician except for like you know the pure-hearted people like Bernie Sanders or whatever, which are ex- extremely rare. Um, but right. then when they want to get like, you know, a, a socialist politician out of power, in, you know, Latin America, they just point out the corruption that they're involved in, which is exactly right. like the corruption they're involved in. But then they say, oh, this person is, you know, Im- an immoral person because, you know, they, they are skimming money from, public spending just like i'm doing except uh look the other way while i do it (laughs) right i actually have like a relevant story from my hometown if it's if this is like a good time to tell it i just want to finish my point real quick though uh i think if you see that there's no real distinction between politics and economics it kind of inoculates you against that right go ahead so um i'm originally from near well i call my hometown basically wilmington north carolina um and there was an article that just came out that said developer requesting wilmington rezoning at gordon and market would lead to a seven thousand percent daily trip increase and wilmington specifically like the market street corridor has a ton of traffic problems and so like i was like oh man that's really fucked up let me read this article and i was reading through it and it said the property owners include Robert N. Batuios from New York, Nicholas Batuios, Peter Sappho, and the Batuios-Sappho recombination. And I saw that name Peter Sappho, and I looked him up, and apparently he died at the beginning of the year. And sure enough, his one of his pallbearers at the funeral was uh, Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho. 
So isn't that interesting how, like, you know, this very obviously, like, problematic rezoning and possible construction project uh, has managed to have something that would affect, like, the larger economics of Wilmington overlooked when that particular thing is something that the city can control. You know what I mean? Right. Like, traffic, like, traffic and, and, and public transit is something that the city can control. But, you know, we just happened to scoot right past that one. Isn't that interesting? It's funny, <laughs> though, the, the traffic there, even in the areas where it's a problem, is, it, like, coming from the D.C. area, it's just, like, nothing. Uh, when I when I go to visit my parents, they're like, oh, how's the traffic? I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you, and, but, like, that's kind I'm sure of relative. Another... It's it's probably pretty bad, huh? Um, well, I mean, Wilmington's not a very big town. Right. Um, and Market Street, like, the pr- the big problem that they're running into is that Market Street is pr- is pretty much one of the oldest, like, main thoroughfares in the city. Mm-hmm. And Wilmington, like most coastal southern towns, has a lot of, like, very old and beautiful trees. And granted, a lot of them are dying because of pollution and, like, poor, like, forestry stuff mm-hmm. um but a lot of those trees line market street and so like for example i don't know if it, i think it might have gotten uh cut down actually but there was like this weird like spot just outside of downtown where there was this huge beautiful old oak tree and like the road literally like swerved around it <laughs> like <laughs> I, again, like I, if you looked up, if you I could, if you looked up, like Market Street and Kerr, just like southwest of that, um, you can probably see like where it is. But you know, that's for the listeners at home to do. We've got other stuff to talk about. <laughs> oh yeah, there, there was also in uh, North Carolina a few years ago that scandal with the governor. I think who was he owned or like owned shares in Duke Energy and yeah, yeah was uh, yeah, got in trouble for the coal ash ponds. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah so that's, was, that's um, just how everything works like everywhere, you know, <laughs> I was actually working in the North Carolina Department of Health when that happened, like in oh, the wow. like epidemiology and public health division. Um, and like it was literally like the last few weeks that I was there and then like my office mate was just like oh man this is a thing that's happening and now I have to work on it and like as I I was just working there temporarily and as my contract was ending I have less work to do so I just started going around talking to like some of the people there and one of the guys who was working there who like brilliant dude like we talk about like just different different public health stuff and he was very 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 intelligent uh and very dedicated to his work he spoke out against that exact thing and got fired for it wow like yeah pat mccrory the the pat mccrory administration pressured the department to fire him yeah oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I guess our our conclusion for that uh, section is just <laughs> corruption is fine. If I mean, either you think the state is bad or you should think corruption is fine because that's how it works. <laughs> right. Right. Um, you have something about Jurassic Park. What is what is that about? I'm interested in that. Oh, uh, that whole thing was more talking about like my kind of like ideological development and uh-huh. uh Jurassic Park is kind of how, you know, uh, even like when I was eight years old, when I first read the book and I had no idea what the hell I was reading, um, was like my first exposure to like a kind of anti-consumerism critique of science. Um, Because like, I, I don't know what Michael Crichton's ideology is, but he's definitely like, he's definitely a more... Uh, has some more postmodern takes about like the role of science in like public society. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and he got like wrecked over it for airframe, which I think is about, um, I think it's airframe. It might be another one uh, where he was like, kind of came out as a global warming skeptic. Um, but it was more like, I think the way that we are looking at global warming is problematic and kind of pointing towards like Al Gore's whole like carbon cap and trade stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like, uh, or, uh, carbon credits. Um, and, but so like, which is a form of climate change denial, really. Right. Exactly. Um, and so like Jurassic park in particular is like very, Ian Malcolm goes on that whole rant in the movie during the Chilean sea bass scene when they're all eating dinner and he's like, you patented it and you, you sold it and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, these are animals, these are living creatures and you can't just like impose these creatures on an environment that is not made for them. Yeah. Um, and that's where I first kind of like started recon and when I was older and like, could better understand what he was talking about. That's when I kind of started thinking more critically about like, okay, we can't do this. Like I fucking love, have this, like I fucking love science attitude towards like science and public policy. Like Mm -hmm. science, the, the limits of science have to be what the limits of like, like, uh, domination are. (laughs) Right. Uh, and so, if you if you haven't read Jurassic Park, I highly recommend it. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. Is it much different than the movie? Yes, the movie okay. is an action movie. They kind of go into uh, like more heady philosophical stuff, but the the book is very much about like you can't control everything, and when you think you can control everything, is when things will go bad and people will die. Interesting. Yeah, I know a lot of people like uh, when the when the movie came out. A lot of my friends read the book and said it was good, but um, I've always been weird about reading books. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, <laughs> saying that on this episode, which is about two books. <laughs> no, it's um, it's a super it's a super easy read, and like Michael Crichton is is a fun writer. Like he he writes excessively, I think. Yeah. Um. You you just made me think of something else though. Um, with the I fucking love science comment, 
the like one of the things that I really like about capitalist power is the willingness to critique like the basic assumptions of things. Yes. And um you I know you saw earlier this week the <laughs> Twitter fight that I got in about math. Um yes. So someone uh just to quickly recap, someone posted a tweet that was like I saw something about anti-math theory and now I want to delete my account or some shit like that. I don't know. I don't remember what the exact tweet was, but I was yeah. like, you know, I am less uh, averse to that than you might be because I think a lot of math is like navel gazing Christianized bullshit. Yep. And I just got absolutely dogpiled over it. Yep. Um, mainly by people who they like really just want to believe whatever math says um yep. because they, like they asked me sort of like what i was talking about but they weren't really interested in the answer because what right. i said was like well there's certain areas of math that are like metaphysical searches for eternal truth like deductive proofs is the the one that i specifically called out and the main reason i use that example is because I read a book called Euclid and Jesus by C.K. Raju, which is all the entire book is about this exact subject, the yep. Christianization of math and how there are there is like fabricated history about it um, that basically has to do with like white supremacy and stuff. And these were all supposed to be like, you know, communists and anarchists that were dogpiling me. And it's like, so you're <laughs> you will accept that you know, your view of society has been shaped by the state and you are now, you have, you have gone through the, the period of questioning it and arrived to, you know, Marx and, or, you know, Kropotkin or whatever. Uh, but you just reflexively are defending all of math for yeah. whatever reason. And like, it is worth pointing out that Gregor Cantor, who was like the guy that first like developed a a systematic understanding of mathematical infinity, mm -hmm. was also a devout Christian and literally drove himself insane because he was like, I'm a devout Christian, but like this, I, like I can I can create the system where infinity actually makes sense and I can work with like infinite values and it's like come on like you can't say that it's not like a, a christianized like concept when great like the history of gregor Cantor exists and you can read it <laughs> yeah the funniest reply i thought was the person who was like oh i can just feel the jesus radiating off of this and it was laws of propositional logic which might be the worst example they could have picked because yeah. uh I, I mean first of all they're just algebraic identities it's just like okay you just did some algebra and and found some interesting patterns in algebra and then called them laws and propositional logic is exactly one of those like navel gazing christianized things that yep. are used uh in the search for metaphysical eternal truth um, like propositional logic is really not very useful at all. <laughs> and the, no. the, the person who 
like the biggest historical figure for propositional logic was Leibniz, who was a huge Jesus freak. That yeah. was the whole reason that he was doing, he like thought of all that stuff is because he thought he could like become closer to God uh, by finding eternal truth through propositional logic. <laughs> to be fair, uh, so full disclosure, I have a math degree. <laughs> Um, and I minored in philosophy and like, this was something that I specific, like literally the last paper I wrote in college was about the development of like the axiomatic like system and like the, the whole like foundational crisis in the early 1900s. Um, and to be fair, there's also Bertrand Russell who is very big on propositional logic and is a like prototypical atheist. So, like, it's not, but he's also an atheist in, like, if you actually read some of his stuff, he's an atheist in that way, in the way that, like, a lot of, like, formerly Christian atheists are. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. their, their conception of atheism is to reject the Christian God and to conceive of God only in terms of the Christian God or conceive of religion in general. Yeah, there was actually another tweet that I saw, like, two weeks ago. Um that got dogpiled way worse than, than mine. Uh, and they were saying that like a lot of atheists still have Christian views and are completely incapable of interrogating it because they don't know anything about other religions. And so they, they don't realize like what parts of their views are Christian and, and like all of the like new atheist types absolutely just lost their shit. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, my my partner's Jewish and she she was kind of the first person to point out like the kind of Christianization of like the new or the like fundamental Christian values that are at the core of like the new atheist movement. Mm-hmm. And she's so she's like a Jewish atheist and or I, I think she's a Jewish atheist. I don't know. Um, but she pointed out that like Jewish atheism, specifically Jewish atheism, which to like new atheists seems like a contradiction in terms, but like there's a long tradition within Judaism of disbelief in God Uh (laughs) and like, or, or criticism of God. And like uh, it with, from what she said and from what I've, what I've read of other like Jewish writers who have talked about this is like, this is kind of a, one of the like very like core things within Judaism that like you can analyze these things and like God is not this like uh, external set of, of values that can't be like critiqued or modified. Mm -hmm. And like that kind of goes back to, to the propositional logic thing, which is like, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to met like a, a make like a, a, a system of values that can't be critiqued. And until they find a contradiction, in which case it's totally fine to go back and like completely redo that. <laughs> and and um, I feel like that's, that's kind of like, again, to kind of, I might be jumping ahead a little bit, but that's kind of like what the postmodernists were trying to do. They were trying to point out that like when you, you're setting yourself up to fail, fail, if you, you create these like rigid value systems that can't be, critiqued until like there's some sort of crisis yeah um one thing you got me thinking of too which um i know i'm not going to get this totally right 
uh, because it's been so long since I read the book, but it, it was, it's actually another thing from Euclid and Jesus where he was talking about the differences in like, um, metaphysics between Christianity and, uh, Islam. And there are, um, Islamic conceptions of the world where basically God creates the world at every single moment of time, like creates it anew at, at every moment. And mm-hmm. so that's a completely different way of perceiving reality than like the materialist view, which is a very Marxist thing where God <laughs> created the world a long time ago and it has just gone, you know, everything is like a solid independent object and it's just gone on, you know, since creation on its own. Right. And, and maybe, maybe you'll come across some Christians who then say that like, you know, he, he interjects himself within, within the quote unquote real world mm-hmm. to address something or like, because he feels like it. Yeah. Like, which, but if I remember right, that's why that's like one of the reasons people say inshallah is because God creates the world at every moment. And so, you know, God willing means literally like something God may happen if God wills it to happen. <laughs> I love that. Inshallah, like, is one of my favorite non-English words because it yeah. literally <laughs> one of those things that like means anything. <laughs> it's like so contextual. I love it. Um, okay, so let's get into the postmodern stuff because that is that is one of the things that I think both of us uh, disagree with Bickler and Nitzan about. Yes. Uh, so do you want to start with that because you, uh, you're a little bit more familiar, and I can just jump in. So my big thing is that like I think some of their criticisms of like postism and postmodernism. I, I fucking hate postism, by the way. Like, it yeah. seems like just a way to not say postmodernism. Um, but. And to me, that would of... include, like, you know, post hardcore, post rock. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it feels like a lot of their criticisms of this are, like, weirdly personal. And, like, like they've gotten into arguments with postus. And they ended maybe up maybe they had one as their professor at some point. <laughs> yeah, 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 and it's like and like like they have they have some whole thing about like shitting on decolonialism and like uh, race critical race theory and gender theory and shit like that. And it's like my thing is that I don't think though any of those things are are complete in the way that Marxism presents itself to be or, mm-hmm. or in the way that they're trying to make like cast theory be um, because I think they are right that in, you know, the mid 1900s, the, the like Marxist academic left stopped talking about economics and they started focusing on these social things because like the social things were the things that you could get funding for. Like, Duh, that's what's going to like crop up. <laughs> and one of the one of the arguments uh that I made uh in the group chat, let me see if I can find it real quick. Um Shouts out to that, Daniel who's always arguing with us about this stuff, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, I do I do love you and I'm sorry for being so mean to you the other day. <laughs> I like I, I've been kind of beating myself up over it. 
actually, um, since we're bringing him up, uh, I, I'm just I'm actually gonna plug his uh, YouTube channel Anarch. It's actually really good. Uh, he did a uh, he started a video series recently about how Marxist Leninism is counter revolutionary, um, and talks a lot about the history of the Russian Revolution, and it's really great. So check yes, that out. Yes, it's really really good. Um. Anyway. <laughs> So one of the things that I brought up and this kind of like maybe brushes up with like the critique, the criticisms of identity politics that mm-hmm. a lot of like class reductionists talk about is that like capitalism can still produce analyses of power so long as those power imbalances can be like operant operationalized for differential accumulation. And mm-hmm. that's why you see all of these, all of these corporations and companies like trying to position themselves as like social justice, blah, 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 blah. Because that is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's like a trend that a lot of people like agree with kind of in a broad sense. Mm-hmm. When you, when you actually talk to, some feminists they might be gender critical like weird turfy people but regardless like they still recognize like at least lgb people as quote unquote valid um mm-hmm. and i think they'll and, eventually include trans people in that as well yeah no the, i i think that particular tendency is like becoming more and more marginalized for like they're really just misanthropic attitude towards trans people honestly Um, it's like it's a little weird that people act surprised about it because it has already done this so many times before with like the counterculture movement uh like the grunge movement punk you know like everyone everyone grew up with hot topic in the you know 90s and 2000s uh selling like punk merchandise and that's exactly the same thing as like capitalism doing like woke washing it's the same exact sort of thing it's taking something that is supposed to be anti-establishment you know anti-hegemonic power and capitalizing on it and right. it's re- it's recuperation and yeah. like and my whole thing is like it's good that lgbt people are becoming more accepted within society but in them becoming more accepted and even like achieving positions of power like the the in virginia there's a trans woman on danica rowan yeah yeah um it and like even the fact that we've had a number of like fairly popular female presidential candidates run and do pretty well Mm -hmm. but like None of that matters if you can't actually expand the number of people and ex- or expand the the franchise of power, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like if if the 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 seats of power are finite and you're just taking one person and putting a different person in there, regardless of like gender identity, racial identity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that does not expand power. It yeah, like in one sense, the class reductionists are correct <laughs> yeah. in that one sense. But, but then they overcorrect and yeah. say that, like, actually, none, no identity politics, uh, politics stuff matters. And I think that that's kind of that's kind of in the same way that or the same kind of thing that I have trouble with with Bickler and Nitzan is mm-hmm. that, like, they recognize that all of these things lack a coherent economic analysis which 
some of them honestly don't like if you look at like the the Kombi women's collective thing where intersectionality came up like they were a bunch of marxist feminists like of course they consider economics mm -hmm. uh but though bickler and nitsan kind of point out some deficiencies there just because it lacks that component doesn't mean it doesn't have like a, a liberatory direction yeah, my, my tendency is always to try and incorporate that into the economic analysis and not to just reject yeah. it because it, it lacks it. Yeah. And like, um, so like actually going to the text. I, 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 I guess I, I would rather say class analysis. I don't like saying economic. There was, I, I remember actually writing something in response to one of their like weird sneers against uh, like postist stuff. For the typical postist, our historical view here is no more than Eurocentric arrogance, a remnant of the imperial mindset and its post-colonial su successor. Uh, and I literally, like, in the margin I wrote, tedious bullshit, cry about it, you babies. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, you can... The pro and and like this kind of goes back to a criticism of post of like a lot of postmodern postmodernist discourse is that like yes something can be eurocentric yes something can be called out for its limited analytical scope but that doesn't mean that the conclusions that it draws are not valid or cannot right. be like expanded in that direction and i feel like they do that a lot with a lot of shit oh the other the other footnote was at the bottom of uh, page 34 at the very beginning of chapter three. Um, uh, wow. I opened right to it. <laughs> <laughs> the dominant postmodern fashion loves to reject this universal history, or should we rather say narrative in favor of a much more politically correct present protestation. The post is not only decry the oppression of the East by the West, but also insist that the so-called Western scientific revolution in fact originated in the Orient. And I, my foot, my my margin note was pretty sure no one claims this as strongly as implied here, or if they do claim it, it's a purely rhetorical move to convince like deeply like people who have some like deeply held Western chauvinism to be like, please for the love of God consider something else. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, and another thing is, and I can't believe. I have been able to bring this up so much, but another thing in Euclid and Jesus was the fact <laughs> that a lot of this Christianization of math stuff was like, for example, um, we are taught in schools that calculus was invented whole cloth by Isaac Newton to explain orbits. Right. Is that, is that what they say? It was, it was invented by some Western white scientists to explain planetary orbits. But yeah, really what happened Newton was basically at the same time. Yeah, it was taken from uh, like the Islamic uh, society brought over to Europe. And in Europe, there were laws by the Catholic Church that prevented uh, Christians from citing Muslim sources uh, and so they just said they made it all up. And so we just take that as gospel that, ha ha ha. Um, we take that as gospel that, you know, oh yeah, they invented it. But it was really just like, yeah, they took all of this stuff from the actual, you know, like uh, advanced society at the time and used it for their own. And then they built on it. 
Right. And I mean, like, algebra is an Arabic word. Yeah. It comes yeah. from algebra, which is like the work. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And in that in that math, the math tweet, uh, that was like the, ma- the main example that I said was like very useful. It's like there are plenty of useful forms of math like algebra. In philosophy of math, there are a lot of different tendencies on like how mathematical knowledge is like formed, created, discovered, whatever, whatever, whatever. I personally am like pretty taken with the quasi empiricist mm-hmm. uh, argument, which is that like mathematics is informed by like empirical observation, uh, but it's not limited by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and because like all you're doing, all math is, is making up some fucking rules and seeing if they have predictive value. Yeah. That's all it is. And the fact that, like, we've been alive for so long and our brains are, like, hardwired for pattern recognition means that we're good at math for the most part. <laughs> right. So philosophy of math stuff, talking about it with people who don't have, like, a background in math or, like, don't, like, use higher mathematics regularly is awful. I, I can't remember if I've said this already, but I think I think one of the things that I, I'm so irritated about with their like sneering dismissal of a lot of postmodern analysis is that postmodernism primarily concerns itself with power. Like that uh-huh. was Foucault's whole fucking thing. Yeah. <laughs> it was always about like power dynamics and domination and so on and so forth. And the and like yeah, a lot of people when I start talking about capitalist power think that I'm talking about Foucault because they've never heard of Casp. Yeah, and so like, and I think part of the problem and part of the reason why they weren't looking at economics is like the institutional aspect of like you you weren't going to get like academic funding if you were looking at like economic stuff that didn't you know prove the legitimacy of capitalism, mm-hmm. but also the fact that like as kind of Bickler and Nitzan tease out is that they kind of like Marxist economics has not had good predictive value for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so like a lot of, what do you mean? The rate of profit is still falling. Look at this chart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Rate of profit is still falling. That's why, you know, that's why capitalism has collapsed. Just like, like uh, we predicted it would. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but I think they gave up on it because like, what else was there to do? You know, like you, you were working with like a, a, a faulty system seems like a stronger, stronger word than I want, but I know that it's totally fine here. (laughs) You were working with faulty system and not getting the results you want, like, why would you continue fucking doing that unless you are a masochist, like, climbing or something? <laughs> <laughs> so, so like, I, I think their criticism of, like, postmodernism's, like, movement away from economic analysis is appropriate and valid, but it fails to understand why it ha- why that happened. And I think that their arguments and the way that they look at how power dynamics actually exist within like a capitalist economic system would be 
much more powerful if they incorporated some of those like more postmodern like social critiques. Yeah, I think so too. Like uh, I, I wrote I my footnote at the end of, of chapter three was like uh, it was in response to the second to last chapter or second to last paragraph um, where it says uh, the objective mechanical cosmology of the Newtonian and liberal revolution started to fracture. In its stead came an indecisive worldview of uncertainty, risk and probability of relative time slash space of an unsettling entanglement of particles and of a rather hazy separation between observer and reality. These developments have been used to justify further movements away from the scientific universal principles of political economy. Vitalism, ethnic identity, and racism have all flourished in the name of cultural pluralism. Anti-scientists have challenged the so-called binary essentialism of Eurocentrism. And I responded to that with saying, these developments set the stage for breaking the intellectual power monopolies that they've already complained about within like the, the academy, quote-unquote. Yeah. And the emphasis from postmodern anti-science rationality isn't about abandoning abandoning knowledge, but that knowledge isn't eternal, fixed, or independent of like everyday human experiences. And then my the last thing I wrote was these petty sneers ruin this text's readability. <laughs> um, I think that's a good segue into epistemological nihilism too. Hell um, yeah! And and this is something that uh, this is like the main thing we argue with Daniel about. Um, I, I am a epistemological nihilist personally, and, uh, just to explain like my interpretation of what that is, it just means that, you know, all, all knowledge is flawed. The only thing that knowledge can really be based on is observation, which, you know, has biases, limits, um, you know, you, you don't always see or hear things correctly uh you can interpret them incorrectly you interpret them according to your existing worldview and so there's no reason to think that anything that we think really is uh, like unquestionable that every like anything is absolutely correct and can never be disproven or that anything has been proven 100 percent correct um what what's your interpretation of it basically the same like like the the thing that my my footnote that i just read um shit i can't remember what you just said see folks this is what adhd is like (laughs) (laughs) um the like i guess one of the big things for me uh especially lately is is just not not trusting academia very much because um i mean like you said they have to get funding and so any any sort of knowledge that comes from academia is is inherently biased by the needs and desires of the state because you you can't do research unless you get funding for it because you know otherwise you would have to do it in your free time and work a full-time job doing something else. And so it's pretty rare that you're going to get knowledge that's actually like uh, counter to the state's interests um, through academia. Right. And if you do, like, it's going to be from an institution that does not necessarily guarantee you, like, economic viability. 
Uh-huh. Um, but like, so speaking on the academia thing, um, on page 56, uh, they quote, uh, Daniel Bell, um, and they, it, it's, if the dominant figures of the past hundred years have been the entrepreneur, the businessman, and the industrial executive, the new men are the scientists, the mathematicians, the econo- economists, and the engineers of the new pol- intellectual technology. In the post-industrial society, production and business decisions will be subordinated to or will derive from other forces in society. The critical decisions regarding the growth of the economy and its balance will come from government, but they will be based on government sponsorship of research and development, of cost-effectiveness, and cost-benefit analysis, the making of decisions because of the intricately linked nature of their consequences will have an increasingly technical nature. And, like, they say it right there. And, like, that's one of the big criticisms of, like, or that's, like, the postmodern criticism of, like, science, science and math is that, like, because scientists, engineers, etc., are positioned as, like, the interpreters of an objective world when you criticize like the divine objective truth that they have uncovered, it makes you look like a fucking crazy person or a criminal. And, Uh you know, fortunately, fortunately we have some uh, neat new state organs to deal with such people and get you back in line. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Like the disciplining nature of school, fucking jail, et cetera, et cetera. I just realized we're doing the we're doing the intelligent version of uh, question everything, man. Be a free (laughs) thinker. Don't don't be such a sheep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like that's I hate. See, everyone else that says that kind of thing is dumb, but when I say that kind of thing, it's actually very smart. Yes. Yeah. Same. (laughs) yeah you know it it isn't it interesting that like in because that kind of stuff came out in the 90s and 2000s just after the fall of the soviet union and kind of like the end of marxism so to speak that like because marxism was no longer a threat they had to like neuter and sloganize all of like the anarchist stuff hence the punk scene Hence the grunge scene, mm. hence, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Isn't that interesting how when, when Marxism fails, they both turn on anarchism? <laughs> it's like when prophecy fails, but for leftists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't quite worked out how to make that into a joke, but uh, that's that's the start of it. So, uh, you know, put it put it together in your own head, I guess. All right. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, so I think I think we need to move on to the capital section. Uh, we've been uh, talking about capitalist power for quite a bit. Uh, yes. So I have already talked about. I I am pretty sure I've talked about chapter one and two on the show. Um, so I'm currently on. I'm like most of the way through chapter three, section two. But section one is very long, so I'll just be talking about that. So I'm skipping uh, chapter two because I barely took any notes on it and don't remember what I read really because it was so long ago. Um, So chapter three, section one, um, he starts talking about money, which immediately pisses me off. (laughs) (laughs) So the first thing I have here is a quote. Uh, Throughout this work, I assumed that gold is the money commodity for the sake of simplicity. (laughs) 
<laughs> which isn't even true for like where was where was he living when he wrote Capital? He was in London, right? I don't know. I don't know. Any answer that I give is going to make me sound like an idiot for <laughs> the rest of this section. So I'm just not going to say anything. Regardless, um, if he was living in London, they used fucking shillings, which was uh, silver. So there was a period where they had cra- uh, sovereigns, in- the English sovereign, and uh, that was a gold-based coin. Um, okay. But it's still... Like, I don't want to get too much into commodity money because I want to do a whole episode about it. But calling money a commodity is just really, really wrong. Um, Ignores how money came about and how it's used and created, um, both currently and historically. Um, And then, yeah, he, like, for everything that I've read so far, he keeps talking about you know, trading stuff for gold and trading stuff for money, like interchangeably as if like people are paying for stuff with lumps of gold, um, which is pretty, pretty insane. <laughs> but right. so that, that's how he starts section one, uh, which primes me to not really uh, want to take any of his uh, advice, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, um, so he says, uh, God, I just have so many quotes here that didn't really like highlight anything. But uh, the first main function of gold is to supply commodities with the material for the expression of their values or to represent their values as magnitudes of the same denomination, qualitatively equal and quantitatively comparable. It thus acts as a universal measure of value. And only through performing this function does gold, the specific equivalent commodity, become money. It is not money that renders commodities commensurable. Quite the contrary. Um, so wait, Ryan, is he saying that in fact, if 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 money is uh, hold on, so he's saying that it, he's saying that money doesn't make things like measurable in prices. Commodities make themselves measurable in prices. I think that's what well, it's supposed to be saying. Well, no, what I was going to say is that okay, so if 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 gold currency is the measure of value. Uh-huh. And we measure, and therefore we measure value in currency, and currency informs prices. Is he saying that value and price are the same thing? <laughs> so yes, I think I think he is saying that repeatedly through this whole section. But uh, the whole fucking book, as you're alluding to. <laughs> I got into a big Twitter fight about this as well <laughs> with a bunch of Marxists. Um, multiple times, actually. Um, the one with um, the the two young Hegelians people. That's the most recent one. But I, yeah, I've had so many Marxists tell me that value and price are not the same thing. And anyone who reads Capital that way is reading it absurdly wrong and then like in this most recent one they quote all these passages to me that like i think back up exactly what i'm saying (laughs) the value is price and it's just like unnecessary jargon that makes things overly confusing because of you know shared definitions between like exchange value as they call it and like value as in like the, the way that we value an object like personal like subjective value 
Right. And and I think that's what's so absurd is that like if they're making the claim that there is this form of value that is not like determined by price and that in fact the value of this thing is something else then like in in Bickler and Nitzan kind of go into this like what is that value? How do you figure it out? How do you measure it? You fucking can't. <laughs> Like that's the labor value that the that they're trying to talk about, and like you can't measure that except in price. <laughs> yeah. So like this next passage I have here, he says, because all commodities as values are objectified human labor and therefore in themselves commensurable, their values can be communally measured in one and the same specific commodity, and this commodity <laughs> can be converted into the common measure of their values, that is, into money. Again, saying that prices and value are the same. <laughs> assuming assuming that prices are measured in units of money, which they are. And like, uh, first of all, I have, I have such a hard time reading this stuff because I think it's the most confusingly written shit that I've read in like a very long time. Um, I know I've said this on the show before, but please please just write things in vulgar English so that normal people can understand them <laughs> and don't have to spend like 10 minutes rereading a sentence to like figure out what the fuck it's saying. Um, and, and don't use 20 positives in one sentence, just write short sentences or at least like just make them run on sentences. If you want to write th- like uh you know, a 50 word long sentence, just make it a run on sentence so that like you have at least separate thoughts Instead of non-linearly inter- like interjecting ideas that weave through each other, it's not good writing. It's bad writing to do that. <laughs> I don't know. In in kind of hearkening back to the whole like mathematics as a Christian like thing, uh, like the way that we use language and like our grammar rules are completely fucking arbitrary. Yeah, like just communicate the point that you think you're trying to make. doesn't matter if it like breaks some quote unquote rules. Yeah, it's like, fine. Just, most, you don't even have to use ver- punctuation. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> like a lot of, a lot of grammar rules were lit, were literally created in the early 1900s because there was a movement to make in- the English language as systematized as Latin. And that's why we have like, octopi despite it being a a greek word having a latin uh uh suffix yeah that's one of those nerd things that i like you know i like when people try to correct me on that so i can correct them back yeah it's octopuses guys (laughs) octopodes if you're trying to do the greek one (laughs) yeah um but so anyway like okay so there's a lot to deconstruct in this passage here so um in my notes here i have like commodities as values are objectified human labor okay but they're not really objectified um in reality the labor component of a commodity is based on the wages of all the workers involved in bringing a commodity to market and wages are power relations the power relation inherent in determining a wage is why unionization raises wages why more competitors for the same job lowers wages 
because if like if they de-skill a job and more people can compete for the job, there's more likely to be someone who will be willing to offer uh, to accept a lower wage for the same work. Um, that's why competition works. So we're talking about power relations in determining wages. Um, so like another thing that this contributes to is, uh, you know, labor being cheaper in other countries. The reason for that is um, one exchange rates, which I need to do an episode on that because it's, I need to understand it better. And I think everyone else should understand it better. Yeah. Um, it's not quite as simple as we think, but um yeah, also just like, you know, lower unionization rates in other countries. Um, and, you know, closed borders also uh, lowers wages because of power relations as well. Um, right. you, and, if, uh, you're, if you're creating a whole criminal underclass who need mm-hmm. to work to survive, but cannot do so, quote unquote, legitimately, then it's very easy to pay them shit wages when you could otherwise, uh, you know, employ someone legitimately and be forced to pay like a living wage. There's actually, um, again, not to go on too much of a tangent, but I've been pushing this book to anybody who is interested in like radical Southern history. Uh, there's this wonderful book called masterless men. It's about the political economy of, Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, um, the political economy of the South and specifically focusing on because like there's a lot of stuff about like the political economy of like the slave labor system. Mm -hmm. But not everybody in the South was a slave. Not everybody in the South was a slave owner. And in fact, there's a shit ton of people who were not only neither, but were also like de-skilled peasants, more or less. Um, to kind of like put it in more of a Marxian framework. And, but even then they didn't necessarily have land to own or work. Uh, a lot of times they had to like engage in like really oppressive sharecropping, Mm -hmm. but even then you can't get, you can't compete against compulsory labor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so like, her whole thing is talking about how, like, the slave economy depressed wages for anybody who wasn't a slave owner. Right. And and a lot of, like, and just talking about, like, what sort of work and living conditions those people had to deal with. And it's, like, the, the, the like, simplest way I've, I've been able to kind of differentiate it is that, uh, like there's the like slavery was like being beaten to death and kind of the destitution of, of being a poor white in the South was like starving to death. Both result in death. Both are easily preventable and both like are, are because of the system of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, so let's see. He So he talks about how like he sort of talks about how prices are defined. I don't have a passage quoted here for some reason, but um he more or less says like um like two commodities 
values can be measured in proportion to one another. So it it's like I hate to use equations in an audio format or at all really, but uh, it's like X A equals Y B. So like A and B are commodities, and like X and Y are proportions. So he's saying that like they each have like this coefficient that determines like their proportion to each other in terms of labor. Um, but like this is this is a thing that uh, economists do a lot. They come up with this idea of how they think uh, the economy could be represented and then they just treat it as if it's true and then go move on from there and and just like like try to test their assumptions or try to test that against like other things if that makes sense like yeah but but in reality like uh, in reality a price is cost plus margin so in reality it would be like you know the amount of time that each worker spends working to bring that product to market plus any um, costs like materials and rent and all that stuff uh, that goes into that product, which on its own is really, really hard to measure because if a company, um, you know, has a factory that produces like a thousand different products, which is pretty fucking common, um, they pay like rent on that factory. And how do you break down the amount of rent that goes into an individual product? Right. Um, and then they also have profit margins. So that that's the easiest one to find because they just decide what that is themselves. Um, and even just to add to that, like frequently a cost that is not considered is like the environmental cost of creating a product. Like that's one of the big criticisms of GDP is that it doesn't like it doesn't account for the fact that like sure you can strip mine a or you can blow off the top of a mountain to get to those resources but like what did you lose by doing that? Right. Yeah. I mean that's a uh, that's an issue with how prices work. I'm talking about like the stuff that you actually do account for. So like right, right, right. when a price when a product is priced there are these are the actual costs that go into it is like all of the labor and all of the costs of the product plus the profit margin. And it's all, you know, somehow, you know, the bean counters break down the costs and decide what the unit cost is and add a margin to that. Um, right. But so like the only component to a cost that doesn't have to do with power is time, which uh, you know, Marx does conceive of labor in terms of hours, um, but there's no single true amount of time that goes into producing a given product, which is why he has to do the like socially necessary labor time. Um, right. But l- all the rest is like clear power relations. So costs, you know, those are negotiated between businesses. That's that's a power relation. Wages are a power relation. Profit margin, also a power relation. Um, so that is like overwhelmingly what what actually goes into a price, and so it's it's just really hard to read this stuff when he's talking about prices being based on labor, when that's so clearly not the case. Right. Um. Okay. Uh. So, yeah, this next passage. <laughs> 
in my notes, I just have come the fuck on, man, before I quote it. <laughs> he says, a general rise in the prices of commodities can result either from a rise in their values, which happens when the value of money, value of money remains constant, or from a fall in the value of money, which happens when the values of commodities remain constant. Um, so I think this is why Marxists also have a really bad understanding of inflation is like this stuff appears a lot in the section and I'm sure a lot in the rest of the book. Um, so let's start with just the phrase value of money. Um, the value of a dollar is uh, $1. <laughs> it always remains constant. <laughs> It is if we're talking about like if if we're saying that prices are value, then money is the measure of value. So you, like it can't do anything but remain constant. Um, so a general rise in the prices of commodities can only ever result from a rise in the the values of the commodities, if that's the term we're using. But I'm uh, looking, yeah, I'm looking at my wallet right now, um, and I have a twenty. All of these. So I have a twenty thirteen dollar and a twenty seventeen dollar. I'm assuming that the twenty seventeen dollar is worth less, right? That's correct. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, because you know, money money back then bought more. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it definitely doesn't have to do with like you know, arbitrary. Back in my day, a dollar <laughs> used to cost a nickel. <laughs> well you know if if i bought if i could buy a candy bar with a dollar back then but now i have to pay a dollar fifty today then that means that all of the thing that the cost of all of the things that go into the cost of that candy bar definitely have the uh have different values now right I don't know. I'm just. I'm just fucking. I know I've mentioned this on the show, and uh, there was also a tweet recently that was asking what your favorite onion headline was. But my favorite onion headline, which to me is evergreen, is "Markets in turmoil as the price of money skyrockets to ninety dollars a dollar." <laughs> and uh, I feel that's pretty applicable here. <laughs> um. Okay. So. Yeah, he continues with this stuff. So, uh, I I'm already dreading reading this next passage. I I hate to like be this like sneering about this book, but it really hasn't gotten any better to me. Um, <laughs> so he says, "Price is the money name of the labor objectified in a commodity. Hence, the expression of the equivalence of a commodity with the quantity of money whose name is that." of that commodity's price is a tautology just as the expression of the relative value of a commodity is an expression of the equivalence of two commodities. Um, I'm not even sure how to, <laughs> I, I should have taken more notes on what that actually meant. I'm sure I understood it like after reading it a few times, but now that I've read it, I have no idea what that's supposed Hold to be on. saying. Hold on. Price is the money name of the so labor. So if you're following along, this is page nine of my notes. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm reading, yeah. I'm reading it again. 
price is the money name of the labor objectified in a commodity. So, like, I guess he's using money name as, like, you know, uh, uh, yeah, so he just said that he just said that value value is objectified human labor. And then here he says price is the money name of the labor objectified in a commodity. So he's saying <laughs> that price is value. <laughs> what the fuck are people talking about? Where are they getting this price is not equal value stuff? I don't understand. Because because if they have to like if they have to say that price and value are the same thing it means abandoning the labor theory of value it means that like it means that when you because you can arbitrarily set prices like you can yes i can resell my phone that i have in my hand for 50 bucks and that means that a used phone costs 50 dollars. you know what i mean so like yeah people have gotten very (laughs) mad at me in the past for saying that prices are arbitrary but they are (laughs) i'm sorry they just are as um, another example, like I, I, I play guitar and I'm kind of a gear hound. Um, and I look at like a lot of used uh, pedals, like uh-huh. guitar pedals to see what I can find. And a lot of time and like as another example, there's a subreddit called Let's Trade Pedals where it's just you trade pedals. Like someone has some pedals to offer. I have some pedals I'm trying to get rid of. They're the same ones. We trade uh and it's always funny going through the calculus of like how to make a trade even there because it's like what everybody does is they go on reverb.com which is like basically musical instrument ebay um or specifically for guitar stuff and they look at like recent sale prices for a thing you kind of like make some value judgments on like uh, 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 what's the word? Like condition, like is it okay. good condition, is it in poor condition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then you just like compare the prices that you get from there to the other to the prices that you get from what you're trying to trade. But even then, sometimes there are things that like you feel are undervalued, like the reason why people do this is because they don't necessarily have actual money to purchase used pedals. So there was one pedal that I really, really wanted and I was really, really looking for. And I was willing to like get rid of like one of my more valuable ones in order to get it. Cause I couldn't find it because nobody was trading it. They were just selling it. Okay. And, and so like I quote unquote lost money slash so value the pot a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and then ended up getting like a little, I ended up getting like a cheap pedal that I actually ended up using because it's pretty cool um, to sweeten the deal on their end. And it was literally just like, well, I have this thing and I don't really care about it here. You can have it. And they're a dime a dozen. So it's like prices are arbitrary. Like it's whatever people want to fucking pay for something or charge for it. Yeah. Um, Yesterday, Diane and I were watching uh, the show Flea Market Flip. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, no. So it's a show where they have two teams of two people each, and uh, they send them to a flea market, and they have to buy some old junk for really cheap, and then they turn it into furniture, and then like sp- and spruce it up, and then they go back to the flea market and resell it. Um, so it's basically like 
and the main reason I bring this up is because flea markets versus like big box stores, just thinking about the differences in how prices work between those things are how I actually discovered the book Capital is Power. Um, <laughs> because, you know, in a flea market, you have two people with basically equal bargaining power. It's just two individuals. Um, either of them can walk away from the sale pretty much, you know, like nothing there is like so rare that the seller has all the power. So it's always like, you know, two people haggling um, for or, whatever the, the object is. Go ahead. Or if, if there is something that is that rare, then the seller usually has other shit that they can sell and they're not like, they're not tied to selling this one rare expensive item. Yeah. And, and in that show a lot, uh, one of the negotiating tactics they use pretty often is like, you know, this this thing is like really big and it's the end of the day. You don't want to load that back onto your truck, do you? So they'll get a lower price yeah. for that reason. But then like if you go to a big box store, everything just is the price that it is because the corporation has all of the power. So there's no negotiating the price. And, and right. so clearly <laughs> prices are decided by bargaining power and the person who has more bargaining power has more you know a greater ability to decide what the price is um, right i feel like i feel like there's there's an analogy to be made about like legibility like the the james c scott like legibility idea probably but i would have to think about it and that would take too long right now um yeah. but but, but all, basically like any anything where prices are supposed to be like objectified like physical quantities are just nonsense so how is that supposed right. to work like if i go to a flea market <clears throat> and i offer fucking like 30 dollars for a pair of rusty old wagon wheels that i'm going to turn into a table how on fucking earth does that have anything to do with the amount of labor that went into it right and i i mean i guess like the Marxist conception of this allows for some like amount of wiggle room around it. But like, he basically says, I don't know if, the, yeah, this will come up in the next passage that I'm going to quote. Um, it, it's basically like s sort of like the neoclassical idea of prices where the, it, you have like an equilibrium that is, you know, that represents like optimal allocation of supply and demand. And, Sometimes there's distortions that happen around it, but, you know, in the long run on the, you know, the highest possible scale, it actually is, you know, this transformation of, of, of a physical objective quantity or like, you know, the objectified uh, version of what people want. Um, and, and anything that doesn't match that it's just like a, a you know minor temporary distortion but like right. that's that's crazy um so yeah again i have here i don't know how you could qu interpret this in any way other than ltv being an explanation of price so this is a kind of a long one um he says this is on page 196 um of the penguin classics version so he says the magnitude of the value of a commodity therefore expresses a necessary relation to social labor time, which is inherent in the process by which value its value is created. And I had this highlighted here with the transformation of the value into the price. This necessary relation <laughs> appears as the exchange ratio between a single commodity 
and the money commodity which exists outside it. This relation, however, may express both the magnitude of value of the commodity and the greater or lesser quantity of money for which it can be sold under the given circumstances. So that's the thing that I was just talking about. The like, it can be slightly distorted, but temporarily, and you know, not not on the average. The possibility, therefore, of a quantitative incongruity between price and magnitude of value, i.e. The possibility that the price may diverge from the magnitude of value is inherent in the price form itself. This is not a defect, but on the contrary, it makes this form the adequate one for a mode of production whose laws can only assert themselves as blindly operating averages between constant irregularities. And, and again, this is exactly how neoclassicals talk about price. They, they say it is like a representation of a, like an objective or unbiased at least like quantity that is you know represents something else either our needs and wants or fucking whatever um and and it fluctuates because humans are flawed basically um, right so I, I, how is this anything but <laughs> price equals value i don't i still I, yeah looking at that last sentence and I might be totally misinterpreting this because I actually haven't gotten to this section in capitalist power, but it makes this form the adequate one for a mode of production whose laws can only assert themselves as blindly operating averages between constant irregularities. Isn't that differential accumulation? Hmm. See, I like, it's just so hard for me to interpret this language. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, well, see, so maybe let's review what differential accumulation is. Right. So, yeah, differential accumulation is um, capitalists can beat other capitalists at basically getting revenue um, at a certain rate. So, like, Bickler and Nitzan uh, speculate that the rate of inflation is sort of the average rate of accumulation of capitalists. And so capitalists that increase their revenue at a rate higher than inflation they get if they get returns higher than the rate of inflation um they are the winners uh in capitalism and those that don't are the losers and so differential accumulation is basically like being a winner beating the average rate of accumulation um um like uh compared to other corporations or capitalists right but i don't know i feel like there's something there Blindly operating averages between constant irregularities. Yeah, I, mean, I think the blindly operating averages thing is the... I think he's referring to socially necessary abstract labor time. Because that is that is an average that isn't necessarily... Like, we can't necessarily quantify it exactly. And the constant irregularities, I think, are the, like, distortions... But I'm not okay. sure because, like I said, I I have a really hard time interpreting this writing. So I could still be I could still be wrong about you know the price equals value thing, but I don't think that I am because <laughs> I just keep finding these sentences that agree with my interpretation of it. I think um, it's, it it almost seems like you actually don't have a hard time interpreting this, and you do have a hard time like. <laughs> making your interpretations anodyne with like marxian dogma <laughs> <laughs> but i do still have to read these sentences like 
all these passages that I quote, I have to read them at least three times before they make sense yeah. to me. Um, and in fact, I say that in the next sentence in my notes, I said, it's impossible to read this shit, but it seems pretty clear once you parse it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, I have two, th- two or three more um, passages here. Um, so the next one is, the price form, however, is not only compatible with the possibility of a quantitative incongruity between magnitude of value and its own expression in money. So that's the distortion in price. Uh, But it may also harbor a qualitative contradiction with the result that price ceases altogether to express value, (laughs) despite the fact that money is nothing but the value form of commodities. (laughs) And and, oh, one thing uh, back on the last thing that this is actually uh, related to is you were talking about how Marx kind of assumes the commodity theory of money. Oh, he he explicitly assumes that. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not there anymore. Like after after we got rid of the gold standard, we don't have a commodity theory of money. Like it is not represented. Yeah, the only people that believe in it is libertarians who think we need to go back to the gold standard. <laughs> Rob Paul is a Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> He has a Marxian theory of money, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, this is, I think that is kind of like the the underlying problem with a lot of this, is that, let's say, labor theory of value is correct, and like, the caste criticism of it is totally wrong. Even then, a lot of, like, Marx's arguments are operating with a theory of money that does not describe how money works today. Yeah. And like even even if you even if you like totally go whole hog into like modern monetary theory, you don't have to, but like money is is imposed by fiat and it's like kind of tied to like oil consumption, I think or something, but it's not really cuz you can just fucking print that shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's really really hard to um like to even do that because not only can the government print money but so can banks now yeah they can just create money with credit and that's supposedly 99 percent of the money in circulation is actually bank credit money so yeah um okay so there's actually like uh part of this passage or this excerpt that so that seems like it might disagree with me um so it says uh things which in and for themselves are not not commodities such as conscience honor etc can be offered for sale by their holders and thus acquire the form of commodities through their price hence a thing can formally formally speaking have a price without having a value the expression of price is in this case imaginary like certain quantities in mathematics on the other hand, the imaginary price form may also con- conceal a real value relation or one derived from it, as for instance the price of uncultivated land, which is without value because no human labor is objectified in it. So that's that's the only thing I think that I've really found so far that disagrees with my interpretation. Yeah. But and even he- then it seems more like like it's a false price. Yeah. 
or well even then with like uncultivated land uncultivated land has value like in and we kind of got into this uh in the group chat talking about like what labor actually like indicates because mm-hmm. like if i'm let's say i live in a rural area and i walk outside and there's a blackberry bush there and i decide i'm just gonna pick these fucking blackberries and bring them home and then i do that all the a- time <laughs> yeah like that's labor question mark like <laughs> like it's certainly doing something and it's certainly like changing like the the kind of nature of this object from like you know a, a, a transmission vessel for seeds to like a piece of food yeah. but is it is it labor does that thing acquire value i don't i don't know if it does like it's certainly the blackberries would i guess but here like here's uh, an example that's more relevant to political economy what about fucking land with oil in it (laughs) uncultivated land that's full of oil obviously it's full of value even though no human labor is objectified in it but i mean i guess you do have to do some amount of work to get that oil out yeah but uh, this is one of the reasons i hate the use of the word value because it becomes so confusing because uncultivated land obviously has use value it just doesn't have labor value which to him is exchange value because it hasn't like because nothing on the old uncultivated land has been turned into a commodity you could you could also you could also make the argument that this isn't even all that relevant anymore because where is there uncultivated land that is not rented that that isn't what rented that isn't rented or surveyed like surveying a plot of land is in the marxian sense like putting labor into it because now you've like created boundaries on what this land is i don't even know if it would be though because i would think they would call that unproductive labor (laughs) which is another like very bizarre like formulation like yeah because it's it's not if you survey land you don't turn it into a commodity by like the traditional sense you're just drawing up a map of it essentially and like telling someone else what is there you're dare i say making it legible (laughs) yeah (laughs) um and then like i mean you can this happens all the fucking time in the u.s i guess only in the u.s but like uncultivated land supposedly you know we can have our issues with that term but like uh can be sold uh to natural gas companies because it's full of natural gas they didn't do any work to it to make it saleable um it's just like the knowledge that there is natural gas under that land makes it valuable right it doesn't matter if there's any human labor applied to it and there's also the whole like uh ammon bundy situation which they were they were using federal land 
to graze their cattle on, Mm -hmm. which like, is that cultivating that land? Is that human labor? (laughs) Yeah. Is that human labor? Like you can find labor. (laughs) One, you can move the cattle. Like, yeah. And and in fact, the cattle move themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So like, and the whole the whole standoff there was like them claiming that this was their land because they've grazed their cattle on it, and the federal government going, "No, we own it." <laughs> <laughs> or like, here's an example that we've talked about on the show in the past: um, uh, bird shit, guano, uh, mm-hmm. extremely valuable fertilizer that created the agricultural revolution of the like 18th and 19th century yep. like made everything into intensive agriculture. Uh, obviously it's not human labor that makes that valuable. It's the bird labor of shitting on an Island. Right. The only human labor that's involved is like, uh, I guess the literal process of turning into a, co- turning it into a commodity where they cut it up and transport it somewhere. Right. But that's not where the value comes from. Right. Because there were whole, like, there were practically fucking wars fought over that shit. Yeah. Literally fought over that shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Okay. So the last passage I have from here, I, th- I think, supports my case again. Um, this is the longest one. So, like the relative form of value in general, price expresses the value of a commodity. So that's just straight up saying price expresses the value of a commodity um for instance in parentheses for instance a ton of iron by asserting that a given quantity of the equivalent for instance an ounce of gold is directly exchangeable with iron but it by no means asserts the converse that iron is directly exchangeable with gold in order therefore that a commodity may in practice operate effectively as exchange value it must divest itself of its natural physical body and become transformed in, from merely imaginary into real gold. I don't really understand that very well. To establish a price, it is sufficient for it to be equated with gold in the imagination. So I think that is like him allowing for the existence of fiat. The equated with gold in the imagination. Yeah. Part. Or it's just kind of acknowledging that like, Gold is serving as a stand-in for, like, some later... So, like, this might be, like, brushing up against another theory of money, but it's, like, money is an intermediary exchange Mm -hmm. medium. Yeah. Where it's, like, I I use money to... And let's say we're using an actual like commodity-backed money. Um, I use money to buy flour in order to make a pie. Right. So like it, the 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 flour being turned into the pie. I don't. I don't. I don't they're this. Or I think you're talking <laughs> about the the stuff that he talks about in the next next chapter, which is like supposedly people ordinarily can like sell commodities in order for money in order to buy other commodities. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's what he's got. What, what he's kind of like. Yeah. That probably is. Cause that's what he goes into after this chapter or after this section. Rather. Yeah. 
Um, because now, now because we operate with a fiat currency and because uh, gold has uses beyond just like vanity shit. Oh, okay. I, I see what he's saying here. Okay, so he's saying to price an item, all you have to do is imagine the equivalent amount of gold. Because the next sentence is, but to enable it to render its owner the service of a universal equivalent, it must actually be replaced by gold. Okay. So he's saying that you can, like, you could, uh, like, price something in terms of tons of iron, but because people don't actually trade using iron it doesn't actually work as a money. I think that's what he's right. saying. Um, okay. So he continues. If the owners of the iron were to go to the owner of some other earthly commodity and were to refer to him to the price of iron as proof, it was already money. His answer would be the terrestrial equivalent of the answer given by St. Peter in heaven to Dante when the latter recited the creed. Uh, and then I have in brackets, blah, 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 reference to something other than anime or The Sopranos. Who cares? Um, <laughs> um, and then he finishes out here. Uh, the price form implies both the exchangeability of commodities for money and the necessity of exchanges. On the other hand, gold serves as an ideal measure of value only because it has already established itself as the money commodity in the process of exchange. Hard cash lurks within the ideal measure of value. So, yeah, that's all I have for section one. And I don't know. Other than that one argument against it, it I really think, <laughs> I really think that I'm right that value is supposed to be price. Right. Like labor theory I mean, of value is supposed to be a theory of how prices form. Right, and it fails to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well. Uh, we ran a little bit long. I mean, we are going to cut some stuff out because we took a break and such. But uh, yeah, I, I think I think we covered it so far for this episode. I, I'm hoping that we can uh, continue uh, doing episodes like this. So uh, whenever you read, uh, you know, sufficient amount of uh, capitalist power, then we can come back and talk about, you know, that and capital. Yeah, where you are in capital. Uh, so Corey, uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking to you about this stuff. Um, I enjoyed myself. Do you have anything to plug? <laughs> uh, maybe that, maybe that answers the question. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, my Twitter account is, uh, F underscore A underscore R underscore T underscore S <laughs> at farts. <laughs> but there is a there is another at farts, but they don't have the underscores. Yeah, make sure you have the underscores. All right. Well, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Sorry, I haven't been doing episodes. I've been very depressed since quarantine started and... Uh, made the mistake of trying to do current events episodes, which I think, I think those are our weakest episodes and I should just like not try to do those anymore. Um, <laughs> Cause I, I just don't pay as much attention to that shit as other people, except for like stuff that's not related to the podcast. Um, but anyway, so yeah, uh, we will hopefully be doing more of these. Uh, 
thank you for listening. Uh, we oh, we're going to resume uh, the last little bit of Mecha Madness uh, soon. We're going to do a Die Buster episode, and we're going to do like a wrap up show to talk about like giant robot anime in general. And um, later we are going to be doing a mini series on isekai anime. So I've started uh, watching all the shows that I need to watch for that and uh, look forward to it. I will be hopefully coming up with a cutesy title for it. I'm thinking isekai July, but July is a long way away. So I don't know. (laughs) Actually, it's not that far away anymore, is it? Yeah, maybe I will do that. Yeah, let's just say it's Isekai July. Okay. Uh, Thanks for listening. Bye.